World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ore Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. An Orthodox church in Ukraine, which some believe has links to the Kremlin, is trying to prove that it doesn't. Security services remain unconvinced. And now, the battle between church and state has come to a head. And a cricket league that only launched 15 years ago has grown to become one of the most lucrative sports leagues in the world. A new franchise model could take the tournament to even greater heights. But first. People are continuing to flee Khartoum, Sudan's capital, where violence has now entered its second week. Day after day has been marked by the rattle of small arms, the deep boom of airstrikes and the chants of militiamen. The fighting is the culmination of a bitter power struggle between two factions of the military leadership. On one side is Sudan's de facto leader, General Abdul Fattah al-Brahan, who controls the army. On the other is Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, better known as Hamidti. He commands the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, a faction that grew out of the notorious Janjaweed militia, which has been accused of genocidal acts in Darfur. This morning, the EU's top diplomat, Josep Borrell, warned that if Sudan implodes, it would send shockwaves through the whole of Africa. And the international humanitarian message is the, is the same. You have to stop the war, silence the guns, and start talking and looking for a political solution, because there is not a military solution. But neither side appears willing to back down. Each day, Sudan's rival forces have been battling it out in the heart of the capital, Khartoum. Tom Gardner is The Economist's East Africa correspondent. In the midst of escalating violence, foreign citizens have been getting out of the country. As is so often the case, civilians have been suffering the most. Hundreds have been killed already, many more injured. A humanitarian disaster is unfolding. Food, water, medical supplies are all running out. The situation seems to be getting more and more dire by the day. Now, Tom, we spoke just one week ago. Bring us up to date. What's happened on the ground since then? There have been multiple attempted ceasefires. The most recent was announced for the religious holiday of Eid, uh, but this fell apart almost immediately. 
One of my contacts in Khartoum described going outside to the bakery and seeing bullet shells flying overhead. That is to say, the capital Khartoum is a war zone. I mean, for example, over the weekend, airstrikes hit a marketplace. There's large-scale looting. Residences belonging to civilians, even to foreign diplomats, have been raided. A missile hit the Norwegian ambassador's residence. The RSF, that's the Rapid Support Forces, led by Hamiti, as he is known, they claim to have taken control of various military sites, and they've been seen on bridges in particular around the city over the Nile. Recently, video footage of RSF soldiers showed them sitting on captured army trucks and tanks brandishing Kalashnikovs. So the situation in Khartoum is completely chaotic and the international community has been fleeing, as are many Sudanese themselves as well. And how is that exodus going? So on Saturday night, US special forces and Chinook helicopters swept in to evacuate about 70 American diplomats and government workers. Khartoum airport itself, that's bang in the middle of the capital, is completely out of action since day one of the fighting when it was hit by airstrikes, which really complicates matters. On Sunday, France began a rapid evacuation operation and said that European citizens and those from allied partner countries would also be assisted. The Swedes have approved a proposal to send up to 400 soldiers in to help get people out. And the UK has sent in special forces units to get government workers and diplomats out. We have taken the decision to temporarily close the British embassy in Khartoum to evacuate the British diplomats and their dependents and relocate our diplomatic functions into a nearby diplomatic post. The safety and protection of uh, British nationals in Sudan remains a priority for us. But British Foreign Minister James Cleverly has said that help for other UK nationals who remain in the country will be severely limited. He advised citizens to shelter in place and have their passports and travel documents to hand for an escape should the fighting relent. And so what are these non-diplomats going to do to get out? So some of them are heading to Port Sudan in the east on the Red Sea. That's about 500 miles away by road from Khartoum. That's where long convoys of UN vehicles and buses left Khartoum over the weekend. But the situation, even for foreign nationals leaving, is incredibly dangerous. A French convoy, for example, was reportedly attacked, leaving one wounded. Both sides of the war are claiming the other is responsible. A staff member at an Egyptian embassy was shot as well. And what about those without foreign help? What's the situation like for the ordinary Sudanese people in the capital? Well, the city Khartoum, that's a capital of some 9 million people, it's one of the largest on the continent, it's growing emptier by the day. People are describing it as like a ghost town. Shops are closed, food is very hard to get hold of now, water is running out. Some parts of Khartoum have been without electricity for three, sort of four days. People are having to draw water from wells. I mean, to make matters worse as well, it's becoming much harder for people to communicate too. My contacts on the ground there are no longer receiving my WhatsApp messages because since Sunday, there's been a near total internet outage in the capital. It's not really clear at the moment what's causing these interruptions, though in the past the military has ordered providers to block the internet, so that's possible. So for the people trying to get out, what are their options? The UN has said that about 20,000 people, mostly women and children, have fled Sudan to safety in Chad. That's across the border from Darfur in the far west of the country. For those in Khartoum, though, that's not very practical. So some are 
taking buses north to the city of Wadi Halfa near the Egyptian border, a 600-mile journey that takes 12 hours. But many of them want to leave but can't. Bus ticket prices are going up. Some might be too old or too infirm to make the journey. Some are driving like that UN convoy to the eastern city of Port Sudan in the hope of getting on boats to cross to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia over the Red Sea. But all these journeys, as we said, are risky and unpredictable. I mean, until Friday, people had been escaping from Khartoum to Wad Madani, which is 120 miles south of Khartoum. But then an eruption of fighting between the two forces cut that route off completely. One of my contacts managed to make it there the day before. But after that, it would have been impossible. Okay, Tom, when we spoke a week ago, you said that peace talks in Sudan weren't looking optimistic. Is that still the case? What's next? Yes, I mean, countries like Turkey have offered to mediate, but these ceasefires which have been brokered have broken down almost immediately. Both sides seem more committed to fighting out to the death. And the involvement of other countries in the region could also complicate matters further. I mean, General Burhan, the head of the army and the de facto president, he has the political support of neighbouring Egypt. He may have its military backing too. There have been reports that an Egyptian jet struck an RSF ammunition dump last week. By contrast, Mr. Dagolo Hermiti, as he's known, he's close to Khalifa Haftar, who's a Libyan warlord, as well as to Azai Safwaki, the president of Eritrea, who has a long history of meddling in the affairs of his neighbours. Mr. Haftar has reportedly sent a shipment of arms to the RSF. So there is a risk that neighbouring countries pile in and complicate an already fiendishly complex domestic conflict. Tom, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. I went to the Pechersk Lavra, or monastery, which is a big monastery in the center of Kiev. Matt Steinglass is the Economist's Europe correspondent. It's been a center of the Orthodox Christian faith ever since this region became Christian in the 10th century AD. These days, Ukraine's security services say that the parish of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which runs this monastery, is spreading Russian propaganda. So on March 29th, the government ordered the monks in that monastery to leave. And since then, believers have been staging a daily prayer vigil at the gates of the monastery. The church has become a battleground in how Ukraine sees its own identity. This conflict is rooted in a long struggle between two bitterly divided church hierarchies. 
Their names are very similar to each other. It's the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church is the Ukrainian branch of what used to be the Russian Orthodox Church, or what still is the Russian Orthodox Church. It's simply the Ukrainian branch of the Orthodox Church as it operated in this territory under the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. After Ukraine split off from Russia in 1991, some churches inside Ukraine began to manifest their independence from that state. That conflict has grown sharper and sharper as the conflict between Russia and Ukraine has grown. I talked to several priests. One of them was Archimandrite Paul. Archimandrite is his ranking within the hierarchy of Orthodox priests. He used to be a racing car mechanic, but in 1993, he had a religious conversion experience. He left his wife, and he came to live in the monastery, which at the time was a wreck after decades of Soviet neglect. We have been living here for uh, 35 years. It's our home. It uh, isn't museum. If the government has its way, he and his fellow monks will have to leave the monastery in short order. Paul and the rest of the monks and priests who run the Petrovsk Lavra now belong to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which the Ukrainian government sees as being associated with Moscow. Last November, a video surfaced of a prayer service inside the monastery at which the faithful were being asked to pray briefly for Russia. There are also suspicions about where the church is getting its money. A notorious priest named Pavel Lebed, who is widely known as Pasha Mercedes because he is fond of Louis Vuitton scarves and expensive cars, has been placed under house arrest. Ukraine's culture minister, Alexander Tkachenko, says the government has every right to evict the monks because the monastery belongs to the government. Priests from the Ukrainian Orthodox Church would say that the Orthodox Church of Ukraine is not a real church. There are two, two places in future life, paradise and hell. Do you deserve to be with God or do you deserve not be with God? So you would consider them heathens? Yeah, it's 100%. But the real conflict between the two churches is political. Orthodox churches have in general always been more closely tied to the state than, for example, the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church. And the Russian Orthodox Church in particular has always been used as a propaganda organ since the days of the Tsars. That's especially true right now. Given the political importance of these churches, in 2018, Petro Poroshenko, who was the president of Ukraine at the time, started a process to get all the Orthodox churches in Ukraine, which were not subordinate to Moscow, to unify. And in 2019, Patriarch Bartholomew of Constantinople, who is the most senior cleric in the Orthodox world, recognized this new group as the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. And since then, these two churches have been competing with each other to win the loyalty of parishes and of Ukraine's believers. Ukrainian security services say that the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the one that was formerly aligned with Moscow, is serving as a propaganda tool for the Kremlin. The evidence that they've produced for this so far is rather scattered. In the searches of the monastery, they turned up 
a lot of newspapers with pro-Russian headlines. That's not tremendously surprising from Russian newspapers at this point. And there are some cases where priests from the Ukrainian Orthodox Church clearly have been trying to sow division in Ukraine. There have been incidents where they have refused to bury Ukrainian servicemen. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the entire Ukrainian Orthodox Church is an arm of the FSB. It's a diffuse organization with thousands of priests and at least a million believers across Ukraine. Many of them are patriotic Ukrainians, and they feel that the attack on the church is an attack on their own loyalty. Nothing that's being done by the Ukrainian government compares to the religious repression that's being carried out by the Russian government. In the areas that it occupies in eastern Ukraine, Russia has forcibly converted churches to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. It has killed or imprisoned clerics from other faiths, and independent observers see Russian persecution in those areas as part of a concerted campaign to wipe out Ukrainian identity, a form of cultural genocide. But although some parts of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church are being used for Russian propaganda, it's a big, diverse organization. Darina is a Russian-speaking Ukrainian whom I met at Petersk Lavra. She says the conflict over the Lavra is painful for her. She told me, one day the government says this, the other day it says that. One day there are some priests here, another day other priests. But what remains is the Lavra itself and what is sincere and true about it. Ukrainian worshippers often don't even know which church their local parish belongs to. Most of them are still affiliated with the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, that is, the one that was formally aligned with Moscow. But that's mostly just inertia. The believers are moving strongly in the other direction. According to one survey, the share of Ukrainians who said they were members of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church dropped from 18% in June 2021 to 4% in July 2022 after the war started. And the share who identified with the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, the new independent church, went from 42% to 54%. The government may have the law on its side in asking the monks to leave Petrusk Lavra, but it needs to be very careful not to damage the extraordinary level of religious freedom that has traditionally existed in Ukraine. Tornike Metrovelli is a researcher at the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute who's been studying the split between the two churches, and he calls Ukraine's commitment to religious freedom precious. Ukraine is unique. It's the only country in the Orthodox world which has such vibrant religious field. And that was kind of this, you know, America of Europe in a way. So if the state moves down the line of controlling the religious affairs, that risks basically this whole idea. Outside the Petrusk Lavra, the prayer vigil goes on. It's separated from groups of protesting Ukrainian patriots by a line of police wearing jerseys that say, Dialogue Police. By now, those Ukrainian protesters consider the Ukrainian Orthodox Church simply an arm of the Kremlin. That makes the Ukrainian government's job in preserving religious freedom all the harder. 
Cricket has long been known as a slow, quiet game. Matches have typically lasted between one and five days, making it a great watch for the casual retiree, but not ideal for sports fans and broadcasters who are after something a bit more exciting. Introducing the IPL. Established 15 years ago as a domestic short-format cricket contest, the Indian Premier League is now a prestigious, lucrative international tournament. Games in the IPL use the 2020 format, which means each team gets 120 balls to try and score as many runs as possible. It's quicker, more marketable and awash with cash. And the owners of the league's teams are looking for new ways to replicate the success of the IPL abroad. The innovation was that the teams which were created out of thin air were sold to some of India's richest businessmen and women for an awful lot of money. Mike Jakeman writes about sport for The Economist. And that money was then used to attract some of the world's best players. And the players were willing to come because they were able to earn wages that were far in excess of what they could earn elsewhere. And it's still true to this day that many cricketers go to the IPL and earn more in the eight weeks that the tournament lasts than they will in the the rest of the year put together. And where does the IPL stack up in the world of global sports? So by one measure, the IPL is now second only to the US NFL in terms of the amount of broadcast revenue that it receives for each match that it plays. It really has kind of gatecrashed the very top tier of sports leagues, which other ones would include the NFL, as I mentioned, the English Premier League, the NBA, perhaps. The IPL's issue is that the number of games in each tournament is quite small. So it takes place over eight weeks. There are only 74 matches. If you compare that to the NFL, there are almost 300 games in a season. So the IPL is very lucrative, but it's also very short. And that is the issue where the the owners of the IPL teams, who are very wealthy and keen to expand, are sort of hitting the the buffers, if you like. So tell us a little bit more about these expansion plans. So the IPL would like to play a lot more matches, but the problem is that expanding the tournament from its April-May window creates big problems with other matches that are established in England, particularly with the, the England team playing its home summer. So rather than risk huge rows with national boards, what the IPL owners have decided to do is to buy up teams in other new 2020 tournaments that are played throughout the year. So what we've seen in 2023 already is the start of a a mini IPL, if you like, in South Africa called the SA20. And when they were setting this league up, they put the new teams out to tender and the IPL owners bought all six of them. So what happened earlier this year in the SA 2020 is that all of these teams had lots of African players in, but the owners of the teams who received the broadcast revenue were all IPL owners. And that's very advantageous for them because it means they can send some of their players out to South Africa for extra experience. They can build the start of a kind of cricket family that knits lots of different teams together. Okay, so tell us how all these franchises feed back to the IPL. How does that all fit together? If you're an IPL owner, you have your core of players that you've bought in auctions, and there are similar auction setups for each of these leagues. You could conceivably buy the same players 
for more of these tournaments. You can be very strategic and sign uh, young players who you want to perhaps test their mettle in a tournament. You can buy them for one of you for the South African team or the American team and give them effectively a trial in those competitions. And if they're a big success, then straight away you've established a relationship with a player who then may do very well for you on the bigger stage in the Indian Premier League. They're not official feeder leagues and SA20, for example, might consider that a bit offensive. But there's, there's no doubt that there's opportunity for brand building and then testing out different kind of tactics and strategies by having a presence in these smaller competitions. So you've spoken a bit about how the team's owners feel, but how does everyone else feel about the IPL's expansion plans? For the generation of cricket fans that have grown up with the IPL, more 2020 competitions, more familiar brands and teams playing in new places is undoubtedly exciting. It's more of something that they love. Where there is a potential conflict is between what we're calling franchise cricket and the established order of international cricket. Because there is no way that the very best players are able to play the number of matches that they could. So, for example, England's best 2020 player is a batsman called Joss Butler. And he plays in the IPL and he would undoubtedly play in the South African tournament if his schedule permitted. But there is no way that he can also do that whilst also being England's 2020 captain. So there are going to be some really hard choices made over the next few years that are going to force some players to choose what route they want to go down. Mike, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show by dropping us a line at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you're really missing out. Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.